Disney movies and chick flicks, they've put us in a weird position. They've distorted our reality because we forget they're actually fiction. Because in marriage, we either get better or bitter, either joy or remorses. What we're doing isn't working. Just look at the rate of divorces. So how's your marriage? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Marriage seems to sound more like a prison than the paradise they were promised. We thought marriage was supposed to fulfill us and make us happy, not lonely. But the truth is God's first priority is making you holy. You say, no one told me. It feels so odd that dating feels like a vacation while marriage feels like a job. Yet the secret of joy, if we just pull back the facade, is realizing most problems arise when we elevate our spouse to God. Without knowing it, we fulfilled Romans 1, 25. By our actions, exchange the truth about God for a lie. We've exchanged God for lesser created things. It's like a husband trading his wife for a 2D image on a screen. Hoping it'll set us free just to find on the fumes we're choking. Because if your marriage rests on anything but Jesus, it's resting in something broken. Yet guys continually sacrifice their marriage on the altar of sex and lust. I mean, if our dollars were honest, they'd stay in pleasure we trust. So men, grow up, put down the controller. How about you lead her with grace instead of trying to control her? Now, I've never been married, but I'm a product of one that was non-existent. So don't tell me I don't understand the pain. Don't tell me I don't get it. So for the singles, become friends first before you ever become lovers. Pursue Jesus as your foundation before you get under the covers. Because believe me, a strong friendship before marriage will make a good marriage after. Marriage isn't just sex. It's conversation and laughter. I mean, some spouses barely even like each other, and the marriage seems like a dead end. You might share a checkbook and a house, but are you actually friends? I mean, if marriage isn't a commitment, then what's the point of the vows we say? Till death do us part, really means until the feelings go away. Like I'll stay with him, but only until it gets tough and my love shifts. But I say, imagine if a parent took that perspective with their kids. Like, can't you see it? The minute the kid spills something on the floor, the mom's saying, forget it. I don't even love you anymore. No, it's just like marriage. To last, you need the strength from above. Because it's not the love that sustains the promise, it's the promise that sustains the love. I mean, think about it. Out of anyone who's actually had the right to leave, God had every reason in the world that he still came for you and me. And on the cross, he paid it all, took our shame and set us free. When he could have called down legions of angels, he chose to stay on that tree. From the cross, he looks you in the eye and says, I'm taking this for my bride. When you trust in me, you no longer have to hide. Because of me, it is finished. You've been made new. You're spotless, you're blameless. There's no sin in you. Because his death was a proposal. He wanted you no matter the cost. Where some guys propose on a knee, Jesus proposed on a cross. So read Ephesians 5, whether husband or wife. Wife, honor your husband. Husbands, give up your life. Just like Jesus gave himself up for his bride, the church. So men lead by serving, by putting her first. So die to self, put your flesh on a life sentence because you don't fall out of love as much as you fall out of repentance.
Good morning, everybody. Doing stuff a little bit different this morning. <laughs> Surprise. Um, we're so glad that you're here with us today. We want to welcome you. And this is a big weekend for us because this is the culmination of our um, Tune Up Conference, which is our very first marriage conference we've done here. And we've had a really good week. And, uh, or weekend, sorry. <laughs> it's, been, it's, it's been a long weekend, but it's been a good one, too. And so we're, our focus today will be on marriage. But I want you to know something, that the words that, that our speaker or guest speaker has for us will be about the Christian life in general as well and about contentment and grumbling in all of our lives. So go ahead, get ready, because your toes will probably be stepped on, but we're actually not aiming for your toes, we're aiming for your heart, okay? So here, here's the thing. I'd like to introduce to you um, our speaker and his, his wife, and if you would, just stand up for a second. We won't embarrass him too bad. This is Chris Kazee and his wife, Laura. Thank you, guys. Y'all can have a seat. They'll be speaking to us today. They're longtime friends of Amy and I. And um, not only that, he is the pastor of First Baptist Church of Worthville, Kentucky. If you don't know where that is, it's in between Louisville and Cincinnati. And uh, he does a great job there as their pastor. And he's, gonna, he's been speaking to us this week and relaying some great truth. And he'll be doing that in just a little while. But I wanted to introduce you. To him, um, I wanted to introduce him to you guys. So when, he, when somebody gets up to, to preach, you're not like... Did this guy just <laughs> he steal the pulpit? He pirated it? No. He's coming, and he's going to be preaching for us. And um, we also want to remind you, if you're a guest with us today, or if you just want to connect with us in some way, we have right in front of you is this yellow card called a passport card. You fill that out. We'd love to get some information from you, as well as if you want to connect with us, there's great ways to do that on the back. You can check if you need prayer, if you want to know about, more about baptism, anything, that's available to you. So here's what I'd like us to do in the sake of being different. Usually this is the time where we all stand up and shake hands. We're not doing that this morning. It's okay, shaking hands is good, okay? But sometimes we just need to turn our hearts towards the Lord and say, God, change us. We want to worship you. And so if you would, let's bow together in prayer, and then we'll sing. God, you have been so good to us in Christ. There's hope this morning. Even if our situation seems hopeless, we think about the old hymn that says, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. There is grace un, unmeasured because of the cross of Jesus. And so this morning, we want to realize and just acknowledge and praise you that you're a good father who's paid our debt for sin and that you offer salvation to all who will call upon the name of the Lord. And God, we pray for salvation and healing throughout marriages and relationships throughout our church. And we pray, God, our hearts would be open to truth. Because so many times we want to rebel against it, God, but let our rebellion be, be squashed. And, and God, break our backs if we won't bow. Have your way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I tell you what, it has just been a wonderful blessing to be in the great state of Tennessee with you all the past couple of days. I'm a Kentucky boy, but it has been very good. I've always been a Kentucky boy, born and raised, pastoring there now, and it's just been a blessing to be down here with you all. Uh, like Matt said, my name is Chris. Last name's Kazee. It's a funny last name. You never have to say it again. Uh, my wife's name is Laura. Before we got married, her last name was Alan, and so I dropped that curse on her. She's got a funny last name now, too. Uh, but it is just a blessing and a privilege to be here with you. And I wanted to show you a picture of our family. <coughs> um, yeah, there we are. That's those. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah, those, those kiddos are cute. Uh, this is our little boy, Carter. 
Carter's a bit of a mess. He's into stuff, uh, and he likes uh, box fans, and he likes Paw Patrol and whatnot. And then this is our little girl, Addison, and Addison is a princess. She acts like a princess, lives like a princess, and enjoys all things that are pink and bubbly. She is a wonderful thing, and we're actually very excited. It's been good to, you know, kind of have a date weekend away from the kiddos, but it's going to be really exciting to see them a little bit uh, later today. Of course, we anticipate that being awful because they've been at Nana and Pops' house, and so they're going to be spoiled and just an absolute mess. We are excited to see them, but, yeah, but uh, I'm very excited to be with you one more time this morning and spend some time in God's Word with you one more time this morning. It's been such a good tune-up weekend, hasn't it? Yes, all you folks that have been with us, just fellowshipping together and enjoying God's Word together and growing in our marriages together, I told everybody when I came in, that I am in no way an expert on marriage. I don't consider myself to be an expert on marriage. I'm trying just as hard as the rest of you all are to to be faithful in my marriage. My goal, my only goal uh, this weekend has been to lead us in God's Word, see what God has to say about marriage so that we can all tune up and grow together. And I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot this weekend. I've learned that my wife is a very good bowler. Yeah. I've learned that when you're driving church vans down the highway, you need to disengage the parking brake. That's always best. Yeah. And uh, together what we have been learning in the Bible is that God's good plan for our marriages is that husband and wife be one. That what God has called us to do is God has taken these two separate things, a husband and a wife, and he has called them to unite and be one thing. That is his good desire for us. That is his purpose for marriage. The thing that threatens that, though, is sin. Sin threatens to tear our marriages apart and rip our marriages apart as we sin against each other. And we've talked about ways to overcome that. We've talked about ultimately how that's overcome through the cross of Jesus. Jesus has, through Christ, we've been forgiven of sin. We've also been set free from sin. And so now we are able to live godly lives. Now, what I would like to talk to you about this morning, though, before I head back to Kentucky... I'd like to talk to you about one specific type of sin that I believe threatens every single marriage in the room, including my own, and that sin is grumbling. It's grumbling. And we're going to talk about this this morning in the book of Exodus. And so if you've got your Bible with you today, if you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. Now, as you guys are turning there, uh, for all of you married couples that are in the room this morning, I would like to ask you this question. Do you guys remember your honeymoon? No? (laughs) I do. For those of you that do remember your honeymoon, wasn't it nice? Yes. Thanks, Matt. (laughs) Wasn't it a good time? I hope and pray it was a good time for you all, right? Typically, in most marriage situations, here is what happens. You go from all the excitement and the adventure of falling in love, you go to the joy of the wedding ceremony itself, and then you just move on into the satisfaction of finally being married and and being able to be with each other. I do remember my honeymoon like it was 9.6 or so years ago. Uh, We were married in Lexington, Kentucky, but we actually honeymooned in the state of Tennessee. See, what happens, we got married at the end of March, and all the beaches were cold. Hawaii was way too expensive for us, and so we went to Pigeon Forge. We got us a cabin outside of Pigeon Forge. The name of the cabin was Romantic Evenings. You know how they named it? Yeah, I know. And uh, it was just a great, it was a great week. 
It was a good week. We spent time together. We went out to eat together. It was just nice to be together. We were finally married. And on your honeymoon, everything is right with the world. And then what's awesome, now some of you guys may have some honeymoon stories where this is not the case, but you can tell me those later. What's awesome is when that honeymoon mentality kind of pours over into the beginning of your marriage. It can last past the trip. And it can last kind of a whole season. Husband and wife are happy. Husband and wife are happy together. They're excited that they can finally be together. They're happy with their marriage. They're happy with each other. And life is good. But eventually, there is something that happens. Real life starts to set in. Real life happens. And this can happen kind of slowly at first. For some of you all, it may have happened a little more quickly, but it picks up speed. See, what happens is we start to notice annoying habits. We start to notice annoying things in our spouses. Husbands and wives, they get a little more comfortable around each other, and so they begin not to worry about what their spouse thinks about them. And what happens is two people that are used to living independently, they're now put into a relationship under one roof, and so they're not able to do what they want, when they want to do it, whenever they want to do it any, anymore. And so what, what happens is that some arguments begin to develop. Morning breath becomes increasingly unpleasant. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Real life happens. That's just how it goes. And stressors then can come in on a relationship. Financial issues, health issues, in-law issues. Mm -hmm. sin against each other issues. And so couples can get stretched and couples can get pulled in multiple directions and couples can start to drift apart. And suddenly it dawns upon you one day that the honeymoon is over. And when the honeymoon's over, we don't like it. We don't like it. Things are no longer picture perfect. The relationship has become challenging. The circumstances are challenging. This person that I am now married to and united to for the rest of my life, they are challenging. And so we begin to become frustrated. And we begin to become discontent with our situation and with our marriage and with our spouse. Because at the end of the day, when we were planning the wedding and when we were dating and when we were frolicking, frolicking among the great Smoky Mountains, this is not how we thought it was going to play out. This is not how we thought it was going to be. And so what happens is that we start to grumble. We start to grumble. We start to complain. It's like that ache, that grumble that happens in your belly when you have no control over it, but it just starts loudly grumbling because it wants to be satisfied with something. We grumble. We grumble about our spouse. We grumble about our marriage. We grumble about our circumstances. We grumble about our situation. And when we grumble, we usually don't keep it to ourselves. No. We will grumble to our spouse. We will grumble to our friends. We might even grumble to our pastor. We probably, when we pray, will grumble to God and so what do we do? What do we do when the honeymoon ends? Common thing across this room this morning. I hope so because it's, you know, this is just real life. 
What do we do when real life begins, when real life is, is challenging, and we begin to feel ourselves, and we begin to hear ourselves grumbling? Grumbling about this marriage that our God has placed us in, grumbling about this spouse that God has given us. What do we do? What do we do when the honeymoon ends to make sure that the marriage lasts? To make, uh, to make sure that the marriage pushes through this season of grumbling. What do we do as followers of Christ who have been called to be committed to their marriage relationships? What do we do to make sure we can push through those seasons of difficulty where we are just dissatisfied with our marriages, dissatisfied with the direction of our marriages, dissatisfied with the state of our marriages, dissatisfied with who we are married to and how they act? What do we do? What do we do to quiet our grumbling? In Exodus chapter 16, our God, he shows us what to do. In Exodus chapter 16, some of you guys may have read the passage before. It's about the people of God and how they have just very recently, very recently experienced God's great salvation, but their circumstances that they currently find themselves in, they have been a bit difficult. I doubt they saw this coming. Their circumstances are probably more difficult than they ever thought they would have been, and so they are dissatisfied with the circumstances they find themselves in, and they start grumbling. As we read about them, we are going to see just a little bit of ourselves in them, and we're going to see what God's answer to their grumbling is. So if you would, read with me in Exodus chapter 16. We're going to start reading in verse 1. The chapter's kind of long. If you need to stand up and stretch in the middle of it, that's all right. I'll be okay. But let's start reading. We'll start reading in verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what, we, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, no, <laughs> but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel, Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. 
then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. It was a good thing, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord God said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And then a fun little note at the end, and Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. All right? There's Exodus 16. This is what's going on in the life of the people of Israel. And the problem that we encounter here in the passage is the problem that we've already talked about this morning. The problem is grumbling. And as we look at this passage, it's very clear on a few things of what grumbling is. Grumbling is discontentment with God's provision. Okay, so here is what is going on. The people of Israel, these are the descendants of Abraham, they've been in slavery. They have been in the land of Egypt for hundreds of years, but a long, long time ago, God promised Abraham that he would set his people free from this enslavement, that this would happen, that he would bring Abraham's descendants out of the land. That is what the book of Exodus is about. 
What our God does is he raises up Moses. Moses is a mouthpiece to be the leader by which God will rescue his people out of this slavery. And a lot of us know what, what happens in this story. It's a miraculous rescue. Miraculous. Great show of power. What God does is he uses ten plagues to bring his people out of Egypt to loosen Pharaoh's grip that he has on the people of Israel. Ten miraculous plagues. He turns the Nile River to blood. He sends a whole bunch of frogs. He sends a whole bunch of gnats. He sends a whole bunch of flies. He puts a plague on their livestock. He gives them boils. He rains down hail. He sends a swarm of locusts. He makes the sun dark for three days. And then, of course, comes the Passover, where every house that is not marked by the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, loses its firstborn child. And this, of course, is the one that does it. Pharaoh gives in, and he lets God's people go. Of course, he changes his mind one last time. And he pursues them to the edge of the Red Sea. And again, in a, just an incredible act of power, God parts that Red Sea so that his people can walk through on dry land. And then after they're safely on the other side and Egypt has given pursuit, he brings the sea together again and crushes the enemy of his people. Israel, they're finally, finally free. God's delivered the people by his own hand through these fantastic acts of power and authority. And he has a great promise for them. He said he is going to take them to the land that he has promised to Abraham. They are headed now in that direction. Things are going great. Life is good. Honeymoon, right? Everything is fantastic. But one month into the trip, one month into the trip, something happens. They come to this wilderness. They come to the wilderness of sin about a month after they have left Egypt, and God's people are grumbling. All of them. Verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people. Nobody's left out of this. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And here's their complaint. They're hungry. They're hungry. They say to Moses and Aaron, and listen to the whine, Okay? Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. A month in. A month into this thing. A month or so since they witnessed all of these plagues. A month or so since God split that sea wide open so that they could walk through and then closed it up on their enemies. Just a month in, and they're already complaining. Already. And truth be told, this is actually not the first time that they grumble. It's not. At the end of chapter 15, the chapter just before ours, three days after leaving the coast of the Red Sea, they grumble against Moses because they're thirsty. Three days. And now a month. This is a grumbling people. Yes, fresh off the experience of so great a salvation, but still a grumbling people. And the reason that they are grumbling is that they are discontent with where their God has led them. And they are discontent with what God has provided. Now they are hungry. We have to give them that. They are hungry. In fairness to them, they're in this wilderness. Food is hard to come by. I mean, things are looking bleak. 
Things are looking bad. They're hungry, and their kids are hungry, and they're marching, and they're walking. They've hit desperation mode. And so they think to themselves, this is bad. This is difficult. This is challenging. Something must be wrong. I don't like this. And so what they do is they grumble to Moses and Aaron, why didn't you just let us die in Egypt beside the meat pots and all those plagues? At least if we had died there, we wouldn't have been hungry. We wouldn't have starved to death. Why did you bring us out here to starve? Why would you go through all this trouble, guys, just so that we could come out here and starve to death? But remember, it's God that has led them into this wilderness, isn't it? God's the one that's driving this boat. He's leading this company. Pillar of cloud by day. Pillar of fire by night. It is God himself who has led them into this difficult situation. And no, it is not comfortable, and it is not ideal, and it is not plush, and it is not easy. And they are hungry. I mean, things are desperate. But their God has led them into this, and he has not abandoned them. They're just discontent with where they are. And they're discontent with what God has provided which is oh so similar to what we do in our marriages when times get tough. Things start off great. We are madly in love. We acknowledge God's gracious provision of this person that we are about to spend forever with. We praise him. We thank him for it. We are riding that puppy love high. He or she is the greatest person in the world. I'm in love. I'm in love. And I don't care who knows it, right? That's how it goes. But then, not too long into things, maybe just a month for your case, I pray the honeymoon lasts longer, real life happens. Real life happens, and real life is hard, and it is difficult, and sometimes it is unpleasant, and so what happens is we just assume that something must be wrong. Something's not right. And we think to ourselves, whoa, this is not what I pictured. This is not what I thought it was going to be. This isn't what I thought was going to happen. This is not what I've read about in books. This is not what I've seen in the movies. This is not what my friends post about online. Something must be wrong. I don't like this. And so we start to grumble. We start to complain. Oh, I wish he wasn't like that. Oh, I wish she didn't do that. Oh, this marriage is no gift from God. I wish I was single again to spend my money however I wanted to spend my money and my time, however I'd like to spend my time, and, and maybe even be able to pursue somebody better. We grumble. God's people are prone to grumble. God's people are prone to grumble about their marriages as we become more and more discontent with the spouse that God has provided for us. And we cannot miss that point. We cannot miss that. When we grumble, we need to recognize that our grumbling is against God. It's against God himself. Now, we may think our grumbling is against our spouse. We may think that our grumbling is against those weird things that they do, that he doesn't lower that toilet seat, that she doesn't refill that toilet paper roll. That's what happens at my house. That all he wants to do is be outside and go hunting. But all she wants to do is go spend my money at the mall, grumbling over differences of opinion, grumbling over differences in personality, grumbling over differences in preferences and differences in hobbies and differences in how we smell, you know? 
grumbling about how little he talks or grumbling about how much she talks, grumbling over where we're going to spend the holidays and with whose family are we going to spend the holidays and why does your mom and dad act like that and whatnot. We may think that we're grumbling against those things, but we're not. We are actually grumbling against the God who gave our spouse to us. We're shaking our fist at him and saying, why couldn't you provide me better? Why didn't you give me somebody better than this? The Israelites thought that they were grumbling at Moses and Aaron. That's what the, they were thinking. You too have led us out here to starve, but that is not the case. God talks to Moses, and he tells Moses his plan to rain down bread from heaven and feed the people. And then in verse 6, Moses and Aaron say this to all the people. At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Uh-oh. For what we are, what are we, that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Oh, no. <laughs> what a shift in perspective. When we grumble against the Lord's provision for us, we're not grumbling against the thing that he actually provided. We're not grumbling against our spouse. We're not grumbling against our circumstances. We're not grumbling against incompatibility or something like that. We are grumbling against God himself. Our spouse, husband or wife, is God's provision for us. God made Adam. Something wasn't right. Adam needed a companion. God provided Eve specifically for him. And so you say, listen, though, my husband can be so annoying sometimes. He doesn't put his clothes in the hamper. He is not good with money. He never wants to talk to me unless it's about football. That may very well be the case. I'd say there's an 80% chance that's the case. But I tell you what, that man is God's provision for you. His strengths as well as his weaknesses. And you say, but Chris, half the time I don't know what my wife is talking about. When she gets mad, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know why she's mad. And then she just cries, and all I know to do is to give her what she wants. Also, 85% chance that that may be the case. <laughs> yes, marriage is tough sometimes, but she is God's provision for you. Whether it is easy for you to relate to her husband or it's not easy to relate to her. When we grumble, we are discontent with the provision, but more than that, we are grumbling against the God who gave that man or that woman to us. He is the one who provided it. And finally, what grumbling is, is grumbling is a lack of trust in God. That is ultimately what it is, isn't it? Why didn't the people of Israel cry out to God in their hunger? Why didn't they pray? Why didn't they seek him? The God who had rescued them. The God who had just parted a large body of water. The God who they had seen to be so powerful and just completely committed to their good. Why, 
Why didn't they call out to him in their great hour of need instead of grumbling at him because of what he was or was not doing? Well, it's because they didn't, they didn't trust him. The God who gave them everything. The God who saved them. They didn't trust him. They didn't trust him. They didn't trust that he knew what was best for them. They didn't trust that he cared for them. And I tell you what, this is the problem with our grumbling still today. No matter what we grumble to him about, including our marriages, and this can be so destructive. Grumbling in a marriage will lead to conflict. And grumbling in a marriage will lead to bitterness. And grumbling in a marriage can lead to somebody looking for an out. And if we don't trust our God if we don't trust the God who has placed us in this marriage and that this spouse is his provision for us, then it's just too easy to raise up that white flag and say, I give up. If we don't trust our God, and if we don't trust our God who has given us this spouse and trust that this is his provision for me, then our grumbling, and our grumbling, it is easy to assume that the grass is greener on the other side and to go looking for greener grass on the other side. Or maybe not be looking for greener grass on the other side, but be completely open to it when it comes looking for us. If grumbling goes unchecked in a marriage, it is a slippery slope into catastrophe. So, what do we do? What do we do? How do we make it? How do we push through. The honeymoon doesn't last forever. I think we can all say that. Real life is tough sometimes. Marriage is tough sometimes. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing, but we have rough seasons, y'all. So what do we do? How do we push through them? Well, if grumbling's the problem, God has a solution, and God's solution is to trust him. Sounds simple, but it's a little bit challenging. This is actually the point of everything that he does, all that stuff that he does in that long chapter that we just read. It's to get his people to trust him, to teach his people to trust him. And what our God wants, he wants his people in Exodus, and he wants us here this morning to trust him. Actually, three specific things about him. First thing our God wants us to trust is his word. He wants us to trust his word. When the people come and they grumble against him, God tells Moses what he's going to do, and he tells Moses how he's going to do it. Verse 4, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. God wants his people to obey his word. He wants his people to obey his word when it comes to how much food they're supposed to gather up. He wants them to obey his commands. He wants his people to trust that what he says they ought to do is the absolute best thing for them. And so what Moses does is he goes and he tells the people that they're going to have some food. They're going to have meat to eat. And they're going to have bread to eat. And our God, of course, delivers on his promise. He, he never fails to do that. In the evening, these quail come up and they cover the camp. There is meat. And then in the morning, there is dew everywhere, but as the dew rises, this flaky stuff is on the ground, and they call it manna. They don't know what it is. They ask, what is this? And Moses says, well, this is the bread that God's providing for you. And so here they are now with all this food. I mean, compared to what they had, it's like the Golden Corral, right? And minus the chocolate fountain. So they're doing well. But remember, God wants to 
test them. He wants to put their obedience to his commands to the test. He wants them to learn to trust him at what he says. And so what he does is he gives them two commands, two commands regarding this food. Command number one, verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as, you can, as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And so what he does is he tells them to go and gather a certain amount of manna per person. They weren't supposed to hoard any of it. They weren't supposed to take extra. And then on down in verse 19, Moses tells them not to keep any extra till the next morning. Some of them do, of course. They disobey the Lord, and it melts. It gets all wormy and whatnot. And Moses is mad about that. So that's command number one. Command number two is down in verse 22. The sixth day is different. You see, the seventh day is a day of rest. God wants his people to observe the Sabbath. So no manna is coming down on the seventh day. So on the sixth day, they're actually allowed to and commanded to take double. And this extra is going to keep till the seventh day. So this was the Lord's command. Would they obey it? Some do, and then some don't. And then God's response to their disobedience is, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? God wants his people to take him at his word. God wants his people to trust his word and to believe that his command to them, even though it may not seem like it, is the best thing for them. But God also wants his people to trust in his salvation. He wants them to realize and remember that they are his rescued people. This is part of his purpose in all this too. I mean, he's got all these things that he's asking his people to do. But verse 6, he says, So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. When he feeds them, they will be reminded that he is their God, that he is their God that has saved them and that has rescued them from Egypt in a great act of power. And then on down in the middle of verse 12, God tells them through Moses, at twilight you shall eat the meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God is wanting to teach his people to trust in the relationship that they have with him. The relationship that they have made that has been made possible by his great rescue of them. And then finally, God wants his people to trust in his provision. Now you and I don't like to trust in the provision of the Lord. We like to sing about it and we like to pray for it and we like to talk about it. But we don't like to wait on it. Because when we wait on it, what this does is it requires faith. And when we're asked to have faith, it takes the matter out of our hands because we like to take care of ourselves. When we take care of ourselves, we can see it. We feel like we control it because we've got our hands in it. And when we have our hands in it, it seems like more of a sure thing. But for Israel, God takes any notion that they can provide for themselves completely out of the picture. They're migrants in this wilderness. There's no food. It has to come from God. And when it does come from God, they're not allowed to save any extra, you see? They're not allowed to store up for a rainy day. There are no overstocked pantries in Israel's camp. They cannot take any comfort in themselves being smart enough to save back. Just not happening. 
And then there's that whole thing with the sixth day. Oh, they have to trust him with the sixth day because every other day of the week when they save their food, they watch it melt. And so when they wake up on the seventh day and no manna comes from heaven, they have to trust their God that he will keep his word and he will preserve that manna that they gathered the day before so that they and their kids can eat. You and I prefer a little bit more security than that. You and I prefer a fridge full of food. We like to have some saved back, you know, leftovers, some of us. We like to have a cushion. But what God is teaching his people to do here is to trust him evening by evening, morning by morning, day by day. God's answer to his people's grumbling is, trust me. Trust my word. I know what's best for you. Trust my salvation. I have made you my people. Trust my provision. I will take care of you. And this is God's answer to us in our marriages. When we grumble in our marriages. Let's say you've got a couple, an imaginary couple named Bill and Lisa. Is anybody here named Bill and Lisa this morning? Listen, if it is, I'm sorry. You guys didn't raise your hand. I'm going to press on, okay? Let's say that you got this couple named Bill and Lisa, and when they first met, things were great. It was instant attraction. They had great chemistry together. They enjoyed spending time together. In fact, they enjoyed spending time together so much, they were just desperate to spend more time together. When they weren't together, they were on the phone talking, and when they weren't talking, they were texting with each other. And Bill, man, Bill was a hopeless romantic because he was head over heels in love with Lisa. He planned these special dates. He did things that he knew would communicate to her that she was just the most precious and special woman in the whole world to him. I tell you what, Lisa... Lisa loved Bill for this, and so she liked to do things that Bill liked to do, and she would like going and doing things Bill liked to do just so she could spend time with Bill. And they were both just so, so thankful for each other. And they were godly people, and so what they did is they began to pray. They began began to seek the Lord and and seek the wisdom of their friends, and they just felt that the Lord had, had made it evident to them that they were supposed to get married. Bill was convinced that Lisa was his provision for him, and Lisa was convinced that Bill was uh, God's provision for her. And so Bill proposed in incredibly romantic fashion, I'm sure, that made all of his friends jealous because, you know, that's what happened. So Bill proposes. Lisa, of course, says yes. They were married and then honeymoon in the Bahamas. Fast forward. Fast forward seven years, the honeymoon is over by now. Bill and Lisa have settled into real life, and real life has its challenges. Bill and Lisa both work, and so they're busy. But even with them both working, the money's still tight. Because part of the reason the money's still tight is because the Lord has blessed them with three beautiful kiddos. And parenthood has been fantastic. It's been great. They don't regret it. But parenthood takes time, it takes care, and it takes attention. And so by the time Bill and Lisa work all week and then come home and then take care of the kids all week and do the kids' activities all week and try to serve in their church, at the end of the day and at the end of the week, there's just not too much time left for each other. So they begin to drift apart very slowly before they realize it. At first... They settle in, just kind of acting and feeling like roommates. Not so much husband and wife, 
no romance at all. Just roommates going through the motions of life together, and they begin to resent each other. And quietly, when she's left to her thoughts, Lisa remembers the days that Bill used to romance her, when he used to walk and hold hands with her, and when he used to plan dates for her, and when he seemed to care about her. But anymore, all he seems interested in is the television. It's home, TV, dinner, repeat. Bill remembers the way that Lisa used to look at him like he was a knight in shining armor. And now he just feels like she is on his case all the time about the kids, about the finances, about them. And by the time he gets home from work, he just doesn't want to deal with it. All he wants to do is retreat to his TV. And then, of course, the next day when he goes to work, his thoughts stray to that attractive co-worker that's always nice when she talks to him. So Bill and Lisa's relationship grows very, very cold. They argue. They fight. They walk on eggshells around each other. They are dissatisfied with each other. They grow bitter towards each other. They begin to resent each other, and they start to grumble. They start to grumble in their hearts. They start complaining. And then they start to grumble to other people as well, whoever will listen. So what are Bill and Lisa supposed to do? To move through this and to move on and to persist and to make it. What are Bill and Lisa supposed to do? Bill and Lisa need to trust the Lord in all the ways that God calls His people to trust Him. They need to trust His Word. Individually and as a couple, they need to trust His Word, and they need to seek to obey His Word and believe that what His Word commands them to do is best for them, even if it doesn't seem like it. Sure, their relationship doesn't seem to be working right now, But they need to trust the Word of God because the Word of God shows us that it can. And they need to trust that the Word of God is true when it says that it will if they are faithful to follow the instructions on how they should relate to each other as husband and wife. If they're faithful to follow God's instructions on how a husband is to be a husband and how a wife is to be a wife, the very things that we've been talking about this weekend. They have got to trust God's Word and obey God's Word even if it doesn't make sense, even if it is difficult, even if all they really want to do is call it quits and throw in the towel because calling it quits and throwing in the towel seems easier. What they need to do is trust the Word of God that calls husbands and wives to come together and grow together and stay together. And they need to trust in his salvation, that they are his, that they are in a relationship with him. He is their God, and they are his people because he has rescued them. He has plucked them out of judgment through the cross of Jesus. He has saved them from captivity through the cross of his son Jesus. He has accomplished their salvation and made it possible for them to be his children. And he will not abandon them. 
no matter what the situation is, no matter how bad the situation seems, he will not leave them to themselves, and they will remember it when he provides. And we can't forget this. They have got to trust his provision. Just because, just because his provision is challenging or looks different than it did a few years ago or it's difficult, it doesn't mean that something's wrong. It doesn't mean that your marriage is the wrong thing for you to be in or that you've made some wrong decision or your God has led you astray. Marriage is a wonderful thing. It is God's gift to us. He's made it to be good. It can be a joy. It can be a delight, but it's hard work. I tell you what, it is hard work, and it's not easy. After the honeymoon ends and those difficult seasons and those challenging seasons, he is calling husbands and wives to be faithful and trust in his ability to provide for us morning by morning, evening by evening, day by day. Now, at the end of this passage, we're told in verse 35, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan 40 years. It was a rough 40 years. But God taught his people to trust him day by day for 40 years. In 2014, just two years ago, the average length of a marriage in the United States that was going to eventually lead to divorce was eight. It was eight years. Christians, we are called to be different. We're called to work at it. We are called to hunker down and keep investing in the relationship that our God has given us. We're called to daily trust him and quiet that grumbling. Trust him with that relationship that he has so graciously provided. Let's pray. Father God, I've done it several times these past couple of days. I would like to thank you one more time for each and every marriage that's in the room this morning my own included. And God, I pray that we are honest enough with ourselves this morning that what we can say is that there is no perfect marriage in the room today. We're all in different spots. Some of us are in a good place right now. Some of us are in a difficult place right now. Father God, we call out to you and cry out to you, though, that you would walk with us and that you would help us and that you would cause us to lean upon you and to cry out to you and ultimately to trust you, God. When we start to grumble and when we start to feel discontent and that maybe there's something better out there for us, God, I pray that you would quiet our grumbling. I pray, God, that you would cause us to look to you and trust in your provision for us. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus because that is what makes our trust in you possible. And we pray to you. In his name, amen. What we'd like to do this morning is, is simply this. I'd just like you to consider what it is that we've said today. You have fantastic elders at this church. You have a fantastic pastor at this church. And if you need one of them 
to pray with you this morning. They're up here. Just come talk to them. They'd be glad to do that. If your marriage is in a rough spot, if it is in a tough spot, if you walked in here this morning thinking, you know what, this could be over in a few days, they'd be glad to pray with you and talk with you and maybe after in the coming week offer counsel to you. But my prayer as we sing this song is that you would contemplate our need to rely upon God and to trust upon God to heal our marriages and to grow each of our marriages. And I, I ask this of you. If you do need some help, don't leave here today until you've asked for it. If you do need somebody to pray for you, don't, don't leave here today unless you've asked somebody to, to pray for you. This church is a body of believers, and none of us are supposed to go through life by ourselves. If you all would, please stand. Finally, it's been a good weekend, and I would ask Chris and Laura to come up. Chris and Laura um, have served us well this week, and the Bible tells us to give honor to whom honor is due, and they deserve some honor for that. Thank you. And um, we're going to raise a prayer up together for their ministry because they're servants of Christ, and we want to pray together as we are dismissed after this prayer. I want to pray for them and their ministry, that God continues to use them because he is to preach the gospel, and that God would continue to use both of them in their church, and God would protect them and grow them because God has, their, has his call on their lives. So let's pray together. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your goodness to us in Christ, and thank you for this weekend. We pray, God, that you would work, continue to work through this, and we thank you for Chris and Laura. We pray your blessings upon them and their ministry at, at First Baptist Church of Worthville. And God, we pray that you would just continue to bless them as they proclaim the gospel, encourage them in Christ, God, and bless their ministry as they point people to you. Keep them safe. Encourage their hearts, God. Thank you for the way they have encouraged us. We want to live trusting in your provision, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.